Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. especially in American history, some of our most noble figures are people who said, I am going to restrain the exercise of my own power. Mm -hmm. And that's what Robert Mueller did here. He could easily had made a determination and he said, you know what? That is not my role. That is not good for our country. And I admire that so much. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. On today's episode, we are going to talk about dun, 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 the Mueller report. It's here. It feels anticlimactic, but we're going to get into that. And then in our main segment, we will be following up on the five things you need to know about criminal justice reform that we shared on Friday and be sharing our more policy opinion-esque thoughts about criminal justice reform. And then to close out the show, we'll share what's on our mind outside of politics. We want to remind everyone that we absolutely love meeting you in person. We love coming to college campuses, businesses, civic organizations, you name it. Having hard conversations is applicable in every environment. So we are scheduling lots of speaking engagements right now. We would love for you to be on our calendar in 2019 or 2020. If you have a request for us to come or want to get more information about that, you can just email me, Beth, at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com and Elise, Elise at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com, and we will get right back with you and would love to be in your area. We get so many messages like, please come here. We would love to. We just need to figure out how to make that work. So get in touch and we'll get it scheduled. <laughs> Beth, where were you when you found out the Mueller report had been delivered to the attorney general? I believe I was at the public library for our family book club when I found out <laughs> that the report had been delivered. I can't believe she had to think about it. We edited that out. I can't believe you to think about it. I really felt like this would be a big moment because you've been following it so closely. I was deep in the woods, which we'll talk about at the end of the show. But I thought that you would have been like, I remember where I was holding my phone and everything. But it was a little anticlimactic. I'm not trying to lie. I think because I've been following it so closely, I wasn't surprised by how anticlimactic it was. Mm -hmm. 
And the weekend, I have been really focused in my personal life on making the weekends more about just being a weekend with my family instead of being so tethered to my phone. And so I saw it come up. I had to wait a while to read anything about it. And then we all had to wait a while because it was like, Mm -hmm. there is a report, but what does it say? And as we sit here recording at 10.58 a.m. on Monday morning, we still don't know what it says. We know that much. Quoted in Attorney General Barr's summary he sent to Congress. So he gets the report. He takes 48 hours to read it. He does not talk to Mueller, which seems weird. And then he writes a three-page summary that goes to Congress. And that's all we have right now is the three-page summary. Let's talk about what's actually in this letter. There's so much analysis immediately of the letter. So I think what happened is Mueller delivers his report. The news breaks that there aren't going to be any more indictments. And then everybody makes a ton of assumptions from that. And then Barr writes this letter and everybody makes a ton of assumptions from that. And it's just not healthy or helpful, everybody. We need to calm down. Well, I really, you know, I thought it was, I thought the the president really being careful and considerate in his reaction helped everyone to calm down and, and take their time thinking through the Mueller report and the attorney general summary of the report. Well, right? I want to talk about that because <laughs> as you look at this letter – It talks about two sections of this investigation, a whole section of which would not exist but for the president not being calm and measured and how he processes information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think there are four things to understand about the Barr letter. First, it says, as a given, almost with no fanfare or as if it had ever been in dispute, that Russia definitely interfered in our election. Mm -hmm. Remember how we indicted a bunch of people about that? 37 Mm -hmm. organizations and entities and individuals were indicted. So Russia interfered in our election. The charge of the special counsel was to investigate Russian interference in our election. He found that. He described it in excruciating detail in a public indictment. And here we have again in the letter that happened. I would like to pause there because remember how the president said he believed Vladimir Putin that they did not interfere in our election? Has he spoken and said, hey, guys, I was wrong. The Mueller report proves that Russia interfered in our election. Has that happened? It has not. Okay. That frustrates me because you don't get to do a happy dance on Twitter about the report and ignore the parts of the report that directly contradict your statements about a foreign entity's interference in our election. And look, interference in our election does not mean but for that interference, Trump would have lost. Who knows? I mean, I do, but I I take your point. But that's an important point legally, especially, right? No one is trying to say the only reason Trump is in the White House is because of Russia's interference. That is not the point here. The point Mm -hmm. is that a foreign adversary did interfere in our election, probably going to do that again. And we should care about it. So that's point number one. Okay, wait, one more thing. Did he start back up the specific task force to prevent this from happening again in 2020? He has not. Okay, I just want to, I want to level set. I want to make sure we're all clear on that. Okay. And I think that's related to what I was just saying. Until the president can get out of the mode of making everything about himself. Never going to happen. And he needs all of our help with that. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we're all aiding and abetting the narcissism. He needs rehab for that. He needs like personal, spiritual quest journey six months to a year for that. But I get it. Point number two. The president and his campaign did not, as a matter of criminal law, conspire or coordinate with the Russian government to win the election. I do not find this to be a surprising outcome of this investigation. As you and I have talked about from the very beginning, I don't think this was ever about outright treason. I don't think Mm -hmm. the president hates America. I think the Mm -hmm. president is narcissistic and greedy. (laughs) Well, you know, I think that as a matter of criminal law is very important because they're could be and is a large amount of evidence that there was communications with the Russian government, that there was even a a certain amount of quid pro quo. But criminal law requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's a very high standard of proof. And so is there criminal level activity? 
No. Was there interactions between the Russian government and the Trump campaign? Yeah, we know that. We know that. And so, you know, I think that that's those are two different questions. But Mueller being Mueller was very specifically tasked with a criminal law investigation. And these were the conclusions of his investigation with regards to that point. And I think you and I have been talking for a long time. I don't know that he even wanted to win the election. I think that conversation with Russians and the Russian government was much more about his business interests. Mm-hmm. So, again, it just I don't think it is surprising to hear, hey, the president did not commit obvious treason. Right. Okay. Point number three, the special counsel investigated whether the president's actions during the investigation amounted to obstruction of justice. This is that whole category of investigation that would not have existed had the president not reacted so strongly to having this investigation in the first place. And he declined to make a prosecutorial decision on that. So the attorney general and deputy attorney general said, we are making that call. And based on the facts and the law, we are going to say no. And we're going to say no without even considering what a giant constitutionally complex deal it is to indict a president. We're saying based on what happened and what we understand the law to be, he did not obstruct justice. I think this analysis is is a little wonky. So they're saying basically because Mueller found that there was no crime because there was no collusion, there could be no obstruction of justice Because what would he be trying to obstruct? Because there was no crime, which I think is sketchy. Obstruction of justice is not I'm only protecting myself because I know I committed a crime. You could also be obstructing the investigation and the pursuit of justice because you are worried about the impacts of those investigations. So I'm skeptical of that analysis. Their other part of their analysis is basically, how could he obstruct justice? He did it so publicly. (laughs) Clearly, he wouldn't have the intent to do it if he would get on the news and talk about Lester Holt with it publicly if he was really trying to commit a crime. I also think that is problematic analysis. What are your thoughts on those two those two pieces of their reasoning? Well, I read them as pieces of the reasoning, not the whole of the reasoning. I think probably what is more dispositive and not set forth in this letter is the thorniness around the firing of James Comey. It is important to remember that one of the two decision makers on this letter is the person who wrote the factual predicate for firing James Comey. Mm -hmm. And so if you're Rod Rosenstein, you believe or at least believed at one point that the president had the absolute authority to do that. And you were part of constructing a rationale for doing that. Very difficult then to turn around here and say, that was for sure obstruction of justice. I participated in that obstruction. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the fourth thing and then talk about overall impressions. The fourth thing that I think is important in this letter is that the attorney general is acknowledging how important it is to share this report with the public. And he is working on that. He says it is difficult to do because of the law's protection of grand jury proceedings. And as we will talk about in our main segment today, grand jury proceedings are wide-ranging, highly secretive inquiries. And so it is true that usually we don't get to know what happens in front of grand juries, and there are lots of reasons for that. And so he says, I'm going to work with Robert Mueller to figure out what is subject to that special protection around grand juries, and I will get the rest to the public and Congress as quickly as I can. Here's an interesting side note from a historical perspective, is after the Watergate investigation, the AG went to the judge and got a full release of the report for the public because I think that they understood at the time how important it was that it not be this heavily redacted document, but that the public have the full and total picture of the investigation. And I hope they do the same here. I think Mm -hmm. the full and total investigation needs to be released. That's definitely what the Democratic Party and what Democratic presidential candidates are calling for. So, I mean, I think if they have to do what they did in Watergate and go to the judge and say, we understand the law protects grand jury proceedings, but this is a special case and the entire thing needs to be released to the public. I struggle with this release the report rallying cry insofar as the predicate for this investigation, as I understand it, is the Russian election interference. And I can imagine all kinds of aspects of that being classified for very good reason. 
especially parts that aren't really about whether the Trump campaign members or family are going to be indicted or not. Just this is how we found out what happened. This is how we got to the indictment of all of those Russian individuals and companies. And so when everybody's all release everything, I think, well, there's probably a lot of it that we actually don't want to be released. But as to the obstruction component, that is where I think releasing everything is really important. And I doubt that there is much in it that we haven't already seen because it is true that it's happened in plain sight. I don't think that you should be able to escape criminal responsibility if there is criminal responsibility for doing it with the lights on. Mm -hmm. But I also think if you kind of look at the full picture here, Robert Mueller conducted a fast, effective, highly transparent, without any leaks, investigation. And that is remarkable here in 2019. Yeah. There were no surprises in this report because he's put it all in the public record as he's been going along. Mm -hmm. And when we say we want transparency, we got it here. Yeah. There is no doubt to me that Robert Mueller was the right person for this job. And I agree that He's put so much in the public eye, specifically that, you know, the president is talking about this as if it is a complete legal exoneration. It is to a certain extent a political exoneration, I guess. But there have been over 200 criminal charges (laughs) brought to people very close to him in his campaign. And so I think treating this as a legal exoneration is not accurate, not helpful, And I think Robert Mueller treated this like a legal proceeding and not a PR strategy because it would have been probably more impactful PR wise if we could have saved it all to the end and been like, look at all these crimes, you know, but that's not what his job was. And so I think people were prepared for this. I think people understood at this point that it wasn't going to be cops going to the White House and arrest Donald Trump and drag him out like it was never going to be that. But we have seen a lot of criminal charges, a lot of indictments. We've seen we've seen that advisors close to the president during his campaign and during his administration were committing crimes. And I think that's important. And I think that's something we can't lose sight of because there was no treasonous behavior on behalf of Donald Trump himself. Important to my understanding of what's unfolded here is the fact that we have not as a country really figured out how to handle situations like this. And thank goodness we don't have enough Mm -hmm. practice to have gotten there yet. I hope that we can not ever fully figure this out because we don't have that much practice. But if you think about the Star report, there was a lot on Twitter over the weekend about Kenneth Starr's report was made totally public, so shouldn't Robert Mueller's too. Well, do we all like what happened with Ken Starr's report? Like, that Mm -hmm. was not a great idea. I don't want to be upholding Ken Starr's work as some kind of standard here. And I think that Robert Mueller's judgment in determining not to make a call when he saw evidence in both directions as to obstruction is his way of saying this is a political question at this point mm-hmm. because of this mm-hmm. office holder, because it is a it is a difficult call. This more properly belongs in the hands of people who are politically accountable. And I know that everybody's mad that Barr and Rosenstein made this call. There's nobody else to make it as to what the Department of Justice is going to do. That is their call to make. That is their job. Right. And now our remedy is for Congress to take a look at all of this. And guys, guess what? It's a Democratic House. They will look at it. Don't Mm -hmm. worry. Don't they worry. will look at it, you know. Well, and that's the important other important part to remember is that this is not over. You have the Southern District of New York's investigations that will continue. You have congressional investigations to continue. As much as there is pontificating and yelling on the part of the president and his allies that this means that Congress should wrap up its investigations, literally no one thinks that's going to happen, and it shouldn't because the idea that just because you didn't commit treason with with Russia during the 2016 election means that you are in no need of oversight is insane and not true. Yeah, I think history will look favorably upon this investigation Mm -hmm. because of the way it was conducted. 
it is amazing how much they did in two years. Everybody keeps talking about two years like it's the longest time. It's incredible what they've done in two years with the volume of documents that they reviewed, the number of witnesses that have been involved, the number of foreign countries that have contributed to this investigation. Especially in American history, some of our most noble figures are people who said, I am going to restrain the exercise of my own power. And that's Mm -hmm. what Robert Mueller did here. He could easily had made a determination and he said, you know what? That is not my role. That is not good for our country. And I admire that so much. Now, I don't love this letter. I'll just be honest. But I also am trying to give Attorney General Barr the same kind of grace that I gave James Comey. There is not a course of action that the entire country is going to step back and go, good job. Right? Mm -hmm. Something perfect is not available in this situation, and I understand why he felt the need to get something out quickly, because it feels like the country is fracturing, and these folks want to say, like, it's holding, our systems are working, they're doing what they're supposed to do, and I think the way things are characterized in this letter are problematic and create more questions than they answer, but I understand why he tried to do it. And why he tried to do it this way. And I do trust that between the Department of Justice and the Congress, we will have whatever approximation of justice looks like under these circumstances. Well, I'm going to take that transition to compliment the other side because I completely agree. I think Bob Mueller limiting himself to his role and limiting himself to his, the parameters of his investigation are key. I guess, heck, I could compliment Bob Mueller. He's a Republican after all. But I'm also going to compliment Justin Amash from Michigan, also known as one of the loneliest Republicans in Congress based on a lot of his decisions. But he had a Twitter thread where he pressed the attorney general to release as much as possible and then reminded everyone in a very thoughtful way that the scope of this investigation was limited and that this does not mean that everything the president has ever done is fine and legal and everything that he has ever been investigated about is related and over with, which I thought was a really thoughtful way to respond. I'm going to take us in a different direction and compliment State Senator Lauren Book, a Democrat in Florida. She has introduced legislation there in the state to combat human trafficking in hotels. Her legislation has four goals to train hotel employees to spot trafficking victims, to establish a new direct support organization for trafficking survivors, to establish new curriculum for law enforcement to address trafficking, which is so important because too often law enforcement directed at trafficking ends up criminalizing being a victim instead of being a perpetrator. And she has set up a registry for those who have solicited prostitutes. There is a companion bill introduced in the House by a Republican woman legislator. There are some discrepancies to resolve between the two pieces of legislation, but particularly in light of everything that has happened in Florida as these spas that were actually fronts for human trafficking have been exposed, I think this is really productive legislation, and I'm happy to see it. As more information about the Mueller report comes to light, we will continue to discuss it, I'm sure. But for now, we're going to wrap up and move on to talk about criminal justice reform. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. 
It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Friday, we discussed five very specific areas of criminal justice reform, and we're going to go into how we feel about several of those areas and some of the reforms up next. But what I wanted to start with is how my thinking about criminal justice has changed over the years. And for me, this has really been a long personal journey. When Beth and I were in college at Transylvania University, Sister Helen Prejean, who's known famously as the nun played by Susan Sarandon in Dead Man Walking, came to our college and spoke. Beth, were you at her her talk when she was there? Yes, I was. Oh, it was so good. And I will never forget her saying how when you go to a prison and you meet a particularly a person on death row, the first thing you want to ask is, what have you done? And she thought, well... I don't let people ask me the worst thing I've ever done. I don't want people to know, first time they meet me, the worst thing I've ever done. I don't want to be defined by that. And it really forever shifted my thinking about our justice system and our legal system. And I and that's a journey I've continued on as I've read all kinds of things. That speech was so informative for me. I did this huge project my freshman year on the death penalty and just generally recidivism and for me, as as a person who has no problem challenging the status quo, who it has to make sense or I'm, I'm uninterested, my biggest beef with the criminal justice system is it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't do a great job at preventing crime. It doesn't do a great job at helping people stop lives of crime. One of the most interesting aspects, I think, is that people age out. You don't have a lot of old people <laughs> committing crime. So clearly it's not this idea that, of like punishment that definitely doesn't help. You don't see lower crime rates in states with death penalty. And so thinking through what is our actual goal? Are we just trying to punish people? Are we just trying to dehumanize people and to shame people and to make ourselves feel better? Are we trying to rehabilitate people? Are we trying to prevent crime? I think all these things are so central and are the threads running through any conversation about criminal justice. And to be honest, I don't think we do a great job of any of those things, except for dehumanizing. We are pretty good at that. And I think we're coming to this point in our culture, as we touched on a couple times in our conversation on Friday, where we just can't afford our current approach. It's too expensive. It's too harmful. Many of it violates our Constitution's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. And so I think we're really coming to a reckoning as a culture and thinking about what are we trying to do here? What are we trying to do? What is our purpose? And 
are we actually fulfilling that purpose with many of these things from bail to sentencing to the death penalty? I think a lot about the exercise of power by the government. And it's striking to me that for a long time, folks who tend to vote in the ways that I vote care a lot about power in some circumstances, but then are really comfortable with the strong arm of the law crushing individuals in the legal system. As I think about what government is here to do, there's a safety element of that, to be sure. And there is an accountability element of that. If I think about how to define justice, to me, it is really upholding human dignity. And that means that we uphold the dignity of someone who has been victimized in Mm -hmm. some way. Mm -hmm. But I don't think our system is doing that right now. And I think our system can and should impose accountability when human dignity is violated. But it shouldn't violate human dignity in the process of doing that as well. Right. And that's what it is so striking to me, especially about pretrial detention. We have this strong presumption of innocence, and yet we incarcerate people in advance of their hearings because they can't post bail. I think that is so problematic. I think it is so problematic that our system is so stacked against an individual who's been accused. And I know that's hard to hear, especially if you have been the victim of a crime and even more if you've been the victim of a violent crime. So I want to just be clear from the beginning that I don't think anything that I mean when I talk about criminal justice reform is about being soft on crime. I think it is about respecting the principles that keep all of us safe from the unjust exercise of power while we are trying to do justice for people who've been robbed of their dignity as victims of crime. And you know how I know, though, that we don't serve victims is because victims aren't happy with the process either. You know, there are victims' rights laws and victims' rights organizations all over the country furious and completely unhappy and angry about how our system operates. I mean, I think one of the most difficult things to think through is that we as a society— do not have a criminal justice system to act on behalf of the victim, right? We've decided that this is a crime against society, and so we use the government as our representative to act. But it's not as if we are coming in and saying, what happened to this specific person is so bad that we need to avenge them. I mean, the idea is that it's a crime against all of us when someone is murdered, not just the victim, and that it's a way in which we cannot operate if these things are allowed to happen because they exhibit consequences and costs for all of us if there's no personal safety, if there's no absence of theft and stuff like that. So, I mean, I just think that's that's a hard philosophical exercise to think through. But also, even if what you think the primary purpose is to serve victims and to put victims back whole as best they can. This doesn't do this either. You know, it's not like victims are super happy with the way a lot of this stuff goes. I think in terms of big picture reforms, getting right to what you just talked about, Sarah, the process is here to serve all of us. It is here to serve all of us on both sides of the process. And it is much easier to empathize with a victim than Mm -hmm. with the accused. But we are all represented by the accused as well. And so I think it's really important to stop electing prosecutors Mm -hmm. because the election process calls on all of us to see ourselves as the victim, not as the accused, in choosing someone to collect a set of wins against these horrible people who've harmed us. Mm hmm. And I think the psychic effect of that has been so damaging and the political consequences for prosecutors who are trying to do better in their offices are so harsh that to me, we just have to find a new way because putting this in the hands of voters, I don't think we should elect prosecutors and I don't think we should elect judges. No. And that's a really hard thing to say because I believe in being a, you know, a democratic society where we elect a lot of people. But this is one where I think we, we are so incapable of imagining ourselves in the defense chair that we cannot do justice to the election process in the way that it deserves. When we're having these thought experiments or we're thinking through the victim, 
it's just so difficult for people to acknowledge that often there is a victim in the seat of the accused as well. And I don't just mean like hurt people hurt people. I mean, innocent people go to jail for crimes they did not commit. That's so hard. And I think it's gotten a lot better. I think for better or for worse, all, the true crime genre has opened up a lot of people's eyes to some of the psychological effects of the way our particularly criminal prosecution system goes. I think people are aware in a way they weren't just 10 years ago that innocent people absolutely confess to crimes they did not commit for a lot of reasons. The psychological pressures put on a person accused of a crime are intense and people make bad choices because nobody makes great choices under stress. And particularly if you are not well represented or if you don't have a lot of resources and those choices are going to get even worse. The sooner we can all understand that this is not black hats and white hats, that this is not good versus evil, and that there are complexities, deep, deep complexities involved in both sides of a criminal prosecution, the better we all will be at thinking through what reforms would really give us the outcomes we want with regards to criminal justice. I don't know how to do this, but I also think in terms of reform, we need to make plea bargains the exception instead of the rule. I think these cases need to go to trial. We need to raise a lot of money. We need to raise a lot of taxes because if we (laughs) – that's expensive, right? That's the problem. The reason we've seen all this criminal debt balloon is because we wanted people in particular, like if you if we're talking about collateral consequences and we're talking about civil forfeiture, we wanted hardcore criminal prosecution. We wanted the police breaking any kind of rule to drop the crime rate, which was really bad in like the 70s, early 80s. And to do that costs money. But we don't want to raise taxes. We don't want to give we don't want to raise taxes. We want bigger prisons and more criminal prosecutions and more law enforcement, but we don't want to raise money. And so, I mean, I think that's another hard conversation. If we want certain outcomes, if we want more trials, that costs money. I actually disagree. I think that having more cases go to trial would result in fewer people being incarcerated. I think that we have plenty of money that we could be spending on drug courts and treatment programs instead of prisons. We just had this big debate in Ohio on issue one, which would have saved the state money by putting fewer people in prisons and more people in treatment facilities. The math is pretty obvious from a fiscal conservatism perspective here. It is cheaper to not incarcerate people. And so I think if we reform the bail system where we're not trying to detain people in advance of their trials, we'll save a whole bunch of money. I think if we actually give them their right to a jury trial, their constitutionally protected right to a jury trial, we would have fewer people sitting in jail for crimes they did not commit. And I think if we reform the way we approach drugs, we save a ton of money. I don't think any of the issues in our system are financial stress that can't be fixed. That financial stress comes from this attitude of let's put everybody in jail for as long as we can keep them there. I don't disagree with that. I think you're right. But we don't get to just start with a clean slate. If we move forward and say we want less plea bargains and more trials, first of all, on the day one, that's the new policy. We still have a massive number of incarcerated people. We don't have all those drug courts up and running. And even if we did, we still have a lot of people in prison and a lot of people in jail that we have to pay for. We have to hire a lot more public defenders and we have to pay them well so that they stay and do a good job. So that is exerting more money, at least in the short term. Now, in the long term, do I think it'll save us money? Yeah, of course. But in the short term, it's going to cost more money to do those, to set up the drug courts or to find the public defenders and to continue to pay for high incarceration rate. Because what you're seeing in California and other places is, like we talked about, even with massive sentencing reform at the federal level, even with nonviolent sentencing reform at the state level, you still have a really high population of incarcerated people. So unless we want to start having hard conversations about perhaps maybe people who have aged 
are elderly in the in the prison system because there I think there are a lot of people who are no lo- who committed very violent crimes who are no longer a threat to society and who are elderly they could be released that would put a dent in it but unless we're going to start talking about you can commit violent crimes sometimes heinous violent crimes in your youth and we will not incarcerate you for the rest of your life which is the common case in some countries in some countries I mean I think that guy in Denmark who went on the island and shot a bunch of people is going to get out eventually. They don't do it for the rest of your life. They don't put you in prison for the rest of your life. We have to have hard conversations about violent crimes if we really want to drop our prison rate and see the savings long term to where we could have more trials and more drug courts. But some of those people are mentally ill, too. We don't have good places to send them. I mean, I think it's just it's complicated. And some of it is going to cost more money before it saves us money. And that's fine. I'm ready to do all of those things. I'm ready to talk about decarcerating people who have been incarcerated for too long. I think that the mindset shift that's necessary, though, is we can make these things work. There is a different way to do this. Mm -hmm. I -hmm. heard James Foreman talk about this last week at an event for the Ohio Justice and Policy Center. And he said, we just never, ever say things like we can't send this person to prison because there aren't enough beds. We Mm -hmm. say that constantly about mental health services and drug treatment. Oh, it's so true. Constantly we say there aren't enough beds. We never say it about prison. That's so true. And so if we can start to look at this whole picture, it's exactly what Sarah Shotland said when she was on the podcast with me while you were on vacation, Sarah. We have to come into an abundance mindset because we do have the resources to make all of this work. And it is going to be very hard. And it is going to require accepting that – We have made mistakes here. We have done things that are ineffective and a new way is necessary. One of the many books that I am in progress of reading right now is The Art of Gathering. And this book is about a lot of things, hospitality and making your time with other people meaningful. But it has this example in it of just talking about power dynamics of a judge. I think he was in New York who decided that sitting up high behind his desk, the way that every courtroom in America practically is designed, was not serving anybody in the process. And so he changed his courtroom where he's like on the floor across the table from defendants. And it massively shifted the outcomes of those proceedings. Little things like that can make such a difference. You know, we're putting a whole lot of dollars into propping things up the way they've always been done. And I really believe that we can shift those dollars and still hold people accountable and just do justice more effectively. I think we have to do that. And I think I guess my my hesitation is I just want people to be eyes wide open about how hard this is going to be. I'm not skeptical. I'm just, it's such a big lift. Listen, people freak out when you suggest that maybe not spanking a kid or not sending a kid their time out or just not punishing a kid at all is the right approach. People have a visceral reaction, like an almost cellular reaction to the idea that Children are doing the best they can and punishing them for not meeting our expectations is not the right approach. I mean, it's a super emotional, but if, but they're going to manipulate us, but they're going to try to get one over on us. I can't. It's it never ceases to amaze me how strongly people react to the idea that punishing children, particularly little kids, toddlers, elementary school kids is just wrong and Look, I say that as a person who's punished my children. I'm not saying I'm a saint here, but as someone who thinks about this a lot and engages people in conversation with that a lot. Like when we're talking about a cute, sweet toddler, people can't wrap their head around her. You know, the idea that let's let's assume the best and work on the environment that made them make this decision. I'm just so scared and fearful that asking people to do that about a grown person who raped somebody or murdered somebody is just too big of a lift for humanity. I, I just I, I'm just being honest. It, it does. It, it's something I feel so passionately about. But as someone who's talked about this for so long and seen people's reactions like, you know, it's like when you talk to somebody about Brene Brown, the people are doing the best they can. I mean, people's heads burst into flames. I mean, they can't 
They can't fathom that idea. It's so difficult for us as human beings to think someone who did something wrong, even if it's an adorable three-year-old, is really not trying to screw me. They were just doing the best they could in that moment, and that's the result. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I agree with all of that. I think that's why we're sick and stressed and miserable in some ways as a culture, Mm -hmm. because we have this sense that any failing must be so harshly punished. We don't have a sense of forgiveness about anything. And you're right. It is a huge lift to do criminal justice better because it asks us to take a muscle that we have not built in any context and apply it in the hardest context. I think it's still worth talking about and trying for, though, because in the hardest context, you can see the most dire consequences of our inability to use those muscles. Right. You can see where we actually kill people. We deprive them of their opportunity for connection with other human beings, to have a family, to contribute productively to our societies. Even after people have done their time, as we love to say, especially in true crime stories, we don't let them be finished serving out their sentences, just like we talked about on Friday. If you've done something wrong, we can't get enough of taking from you. And so it's really hard 
to figure out in this context how to be forgiving and compassionate when we can't do it in the easy stuff either. And I think that all we can do is keep trying to work both ends of that equation. And that starts with our families. It does start with how we parent our children. Most of all, it starts with how we think about ourselves, right? I love my my daughter loves Lori Berkner, and she has a song that's the whole song is I'm not perfect. No, I'm not. I'm not perfect, but I've got what I've got. I do my very best each day. I'm not perfect, and I hope you love me that way. And it's such a good song, and I'm so happy that she made it and that that is what my daughters are growing up with. Because if someone had said to, I don't know, nine-year-old Beth, you're not perfect, I would have crumbled. Mm -hmm. So we just got to keep working on this. But it is deep, deep work. For us to be able to look at people who've committed violent crime and see enough of ourselves that we care about doing justice by that person, not just the person they harmed. Beth, what's on your mind outside of politics? Okay, I know that this is like not a conventional outside of politics discussion, But I read an article that was so helpful to me last week that I had to share it here. It is from HuffPost. It is about perimenopause, which is not a word that I knew about. And I am so stinking grateful for this article. You didn't know about perimenopause? For real? I did not. And the title of this article is, this is what no one tells women about what happens to your body in your 40s. Okay, Mm -hmm. I'm not quite 40 yet, but I have been experiencing a lot of what this article describes. So it basically says, listen, as your estrogen starts to drop off, you're going to think you're pregnant all the time because you're going to (laughs) feel all of these things that are just like early pregnancy symptoms. And that has been happening to me. Every time my period comes around, I have super nostrils again. You know, I can smell everything, no matter what it is. Yeah, or I get it's nauseous really easily. Mm-hmm. Exactly, mm-hmm. nausea. My period is slower to get started, and so you have that feeling of like, "What's happening? Is it coming? Is it coming?" <laughs> and I feel like I am on the world's worst emotional roller coaster. I am a monster to be around. And so I read this article, and I was just like, "Oh, thank God! This is totally normal." Now, I didn't feel great about the article saying it's totally normal and it will last for a period of years. Yep. Not excited mm-hmm. about that part. But just to know, like, I am not experiencing anything out of the realm of what lots of women experience around this age and that it doesn't mean something's wrong with me and I am allowed to just ride these horrible waves and I don't need to buy a pregnancy test every month. I'm really happy about this. I'm very Thank you, Eileen Weintraub at HuffPost Personal. For sharing this important information. <laughs> oh, I got a whole book about it. Listen, my mom used to call it chewing razor blades. That's how she felt during perimenopause. Like, it was a presence in our house. My mom was really good about being upfront and honest about hormones and sex and female bodies. And I just got a, I got a better foundation than I think a lot of people did. And so I was like, I knew she was in perimenopause. I think that was like a thing she said and we talked about and... Also, Oprah did some really good stuff on perimenopause during her show. Thank you, Oprah. Love you. Love you, Mama. Um, and so I think that I, I definitely have, like, an awareness of the shifting terrain of our hormones. Amer- oh, what's her? Northup. What's her name? Kathy, Kathleen Northup. I think she has a real, some really good books about it. But here's the long and short of it, I think. The problem here is we used to have babies till we died. Okay. Even in the best case scenario, we don't have a lot of history of women like not having babies till they die to examine what happens to our bodies in perimenopause and menopause. And even if we did, the medical community super sucks at doing research on women's bodies, particularly with related to hormones. So not only is this sort of a new condition throughout human history that most women didn't find themselves in, but we just don't know a lot about it. And we're all learning and trying to figure it out as we stop having babies till we died. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. I just want to hop in here and save our email by saying, when you say the medical community sucks at this research, you mean historically Mm -hmm. in the broadest possible terms. There are some fantastic people out there doing some very important work, and we appreciate them very much. So here's what I'm thinking about outside politics. I spent some time in the woods for those of you who follow us on Instagram. My husband is an Eagle Scout. He always was interested, I think, in camping and 
outdoor adventure. But he had a bum knee for a long time, and then he got his knee fixed, and he grew a beard, which I think is also part of this process. And he has become very into through hiking. Look, it's a whole language. Let me just tell you. Through hiking is particularly people who through hike these long trails. So like Cheryl Strait and Wild, she was through hiking the Pacific Coast Trail. You carry everything you need, your sleeping bag, your food. You have water filtration so you can get water, and you through-hike. We have a friend who through-hiked the Appalachian Trail. We did a small portion of the Appalachian Trail late last year, and then we live really close to land between the lakes, which is a national park, and it has a north-south trail, which is about 60 miles, and that goes all the way from one end of, if you will, the north end to the south end, (laughs) hence the north-south trail of LBL. So my husband has for months been planning this trip. That was three days, about 10 to 12 miles every day, and then spending the night outside for two nights in a row. So I did the portion of the Appalachian Trail and was fine. That was like 13 miles one day and eight miles the next day, I think. It was fine. I slept really good because I was so stinking tired. It turns out that period of about um, 48 hours is my limit because I sailed through the first day of our three days, which was about 10 miles, slept fine, woke up the next day. We started out in about mm, five to six miles in. Halfway through the second day, my feet said, Dear Sarah, you're done. I had so many blisters on my little toes that I had to push the eject button. We were hiking with the mayor, and the mayor said, I will call my dad. He doesn't live far from here. He will come get you and take you to Dairy Queen, and then your parents can pick you up. So I had to call the dads and the moms to come to to come rescue me, but my husband was with another group, so they, there were like six of us, seven of us total at one point, and they went, they went on. They did like 15 miles that day, I think he said, which is crazy, and then camped and I like I like almost all of it. I like sleeping outside. We have a he has all this gear. I have a little inflatable mattress, pretty comfortable if I'm super tired. I mean, there's nothing like the stars when you're out in the middle of nowhere, which were beautiful the first night. I like it. I really enjoy a campfire. The food is not so bad. Luckily, I really like trail mix. I just have got to figure out this blister situation so that hopefully I can last longer. Although there is a little part of me that's like I think the 48 hours might be my enjoyment limit to these little outdoor adventures he keeps planning. I mean, 48 hours seems very reasonable to me. It's so reasonable. One night outside, one night outside, and then you get to go have fresh produce again. I'm just saying. And also a blizzard. You were living right that you ended this Mm -hmm. adventure at Dairy Queen. I'm just, I'm very proud of you. The funny part was I went and I only had my license and my insurance card on me. I guess I just thought, why would I need a credit card in the woods? <laughs> and so I get there and I'm like, okay, can I just give you my credit card number? But they won't let you do that. So the sweet lady heard me having this whole conversation with the Dairy Queen person. And she came up and she bought me the blizzard. How nice is that? I think that is so wonderful. I think everyone should go buy someone else a blizzard today. It'll make the world better. It's so true. This is not an Which, ad. I just totally love blizzards. From Dairy it's Queen. the only kind of ice cream I search out. Like if there's ice cream in my freezer, it will sit for months. I don't care about it. But I will go get a blizzard. Do you have one flavor or do you vary oh, your blizzard one flavors? One flavor. I'm an M&M blizzard loyalist. Mm, as M&M long is as I live, good. M&M blizzards. Mine is Reese's peanut butter cup. Yes, that is what Chad likes. Although he will mix it up, which I don't understand at all. Sometimes they will lure me with their marketing, with some of their seasonal flavors. And I always regret it. I always wish I just had a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup blizzard. you got to find your lane and stay in it with the blizzards. I totally agree. (laughs) Thank you all for joining us for this episode. Guys, such exciting things are coming on Pantsy Politics. So true. This Friday, we are going to bring to you presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. Next week, we are going to be joined by presidential candidate John Delaney. We are in touch with more people. Please keep talking about the show on Twitter. It makes an enormous difference in people's willingness to come talk with us here. And so between now and then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise.
We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.